been to a few of these breakfast briefings and I've noticed that it's often based on published research, it's quite polished and finished. This is actually ongoing, our funding doesn't end until the end of January, so if it's not as polished as some of the other colleges in advance, but um, what I'm trying to do in this particular presentation is just look at some of the way in which immigration status or not having a status um, is one of the key cleavages that affects the labour market experiences for migrants. Now the focus, as you know, is on, on undocumented migrants. And of course labour markets are characterised by a number of cleavages around ethnicity, gender for example, nationality, social and economic capital. And these all intersect, but really what we're focus I'm focusing on in this paper is the way some of those things intersect, but really the lens is through having an undocumented status. Of course, being undocumented, the literature shows you that um, workers are vulnerable, sometimes in precarious situations, and receiving less wages, working longer hours often. Um, and the focus can be on these sorts of constraints and limitations that are experienced as a consequence of being undocumented. All that is true, and in this presentation I'm going to talk about those things. But what I also want to talk about is... The, the moments in which and the ways in which undocumented migrants empower themselves, use individual agency, make decisions about their own lives and their labour market strategies um, to improve their situations. And in doing so, I'm going to draw on our research project. My two colleagues are here, which is lovely. Um, thank you. And um, I'm going to use the data to try and tease out some of the constraints some of the choices and some of those hazy areas which could be construed as either choices or constraints um, and we can look at that at the end. Okay, just to start with, this is a little bit about the, the data and the fieldwork. It's based on a study um, which is qualitative in nature. I've put there those two study populations. The study was actually with um, 55 undocumented migrants from three communities. I've got Turkey there but this also includes Kurds from Turkey and people from Northern Cyprus as well. We also did research with employers who run businesses within um, ethnic enclaves or clusters of, of minority ethnic communities from the same three groups, and we did interviews with 24 employers. But what I'm going to focus on in this is the worker interviews, but if anyone wants to ask anything about the employer interviews, I'm happy in the discussions to also talk about their perspectives as well. We used, uh, obviously, a, a different range of techniques to try and get as diverse a sample as possible, but it's not based on probability techniques. It's 55. Obviously, for a qualitative project, it's substantial, but it's not a quantitative project. So, obviously, um, generalisations are going to be difficult. But we hope that we'll be able to get <coughs> patterns and ideas about what our data is, is saying to us. What I want to start with is labour market constraints. And I think some of these arguments are, are better rehearsed in the literature that already exists. I think we're more aware of what some of those constraints are. Um, but actually, the, the biggest constraint really is status. There are a number of constraints, but not having status is obviously the lens through which people explore their experiences. So other things come into it. Um, these, I think, going through the data systematically, are some of the main constraints that, that people experienced. Um, under types of work, I've indicated there are sectors and jobs, but there's also issues about restricted ambition, not applying for particular jobs, a glass ceiling, feeling things that are outside of your reach, that you can only progress to a certain extent in the labour market. But also the kinds of employers that might take you on in a job. <coughs> Who could you go to for work? Who's likely to employ you? Um, and what jobs might those, those be? So those were aspects of types of work. Um, and I'll say a little bit about each as, as I go through the presentation. 
In terms of precarious work, um, within this are things like not having any workers' rights, no sick pay, no annual leave, long hours, no pay, um, wages withheld on occasions or not being paid at all for work were also experiences that, that some people had had within the labour market. People also talked about their the relationships in the workplace and, and that particularly was feeling discriminated but also threats because of status and exposure and disclosure um, that affected people's behaviour and elements of bullying as well. And finally, of course, skills and experiences, qualifications, which are verbal skills, will also affect the sorts of jobs that you may or may not get. And English, of course, is crucial to that. Without English, you're much more restricted within co-ethnic businesses where lang- or where in jobs where there's not a premium on language at all. So I just want to say a little bit more about each of these things, and I want to sort of just give you an indication of the sorts of work that, that people were doing. Um, as I said, this isn't a survey, so this isn't necessarily um, you know, the whole profile of jobs of undocumented migrants, but what, I'm trying, what it does give us a picture of is, is the kind of clustering in restaurant and takeaway businesses, certainly amongst people we spoke to. 24 out of 55 of our interviewees were, were in those types of businesses. So there was definitely a clustering of businesses, but we also had a range of other sorts of businesses, and you can see that there's a, an ethnic division there in terms of, or country of origin division in terms of some of the businesses. So people from China, four of those, of the 20 we interviewed were in construction. There was a good reason for that. Construction was, is a mobile job, and that for some was seen safer because of their abilities, moving from site to site or day work, was seen safer as going to the same place of work every single day, and being more vulnerable to being seen going into that same place of work every single day. So that was actually part of a strategy, which I'll come back to later. But that'll give you an idea. We've also got 10 who weren't working. Um, so, of course, there's issues of surviving without work, not being, act- not being entitled to any sorts of welfare entitlements. means that if you're not working, you are either dependent on other people or you've accumulated money to support yourself um, while in those periods when you're not working. And of course, we know that some people find themselves destitute as well. Um, so that's the kind of profile of, of, of work. Now, the first sort of broad category I talked about was types of work. And I, I'm sorry about the chunky quotes, but what I'm trying to do is just give you an idea of, of, of what people said and what their, their experiences were. Um, I'm going to come, I know everyone's reading those quotes now, but just before we focus on those, I should have put them up in a second, I just wanted to also say something about the restaurant sector. And that's that the restaurant sector is very male orientated. Most of the jobs in the restaurants and takeaways are kitchen jobs. They're seen as physical, seen as more suitable for men, and women were aware of that gender division within the restaurant sector. So the few women that we had who were working in restaurants were working in the front of the house as waiting staff. That was a job that was seen as as acceptable for women. But it was more complex than that. To work in the front of the house, you also have to have English language skills. But also, as one of our women said, that she described herself as beautiful. And for that, that was enough for the employer to take her on. She spoke English, she she described herself as beautiful, so she was good-looking. I didn't see her myself, I wouldn't make a judgment, but that was her own language. She said, um, if you're beautiful... Um, and that was something that our employers also said. They, they noted that at the front of the house, looks are important. Obviously, English was important too. So we've got a gender division going on here within the particular sector as well. Um, now, in these quotes here, this is just to show you some of the limitations. The first quote 
is really is from Bobby, who's 31, and he's talking about a glass ceiling. He's moved around jobs, he's been in different sorts of jobs, and what he's saying here is that he can't be a chef. He can work in restaurants, but he can't be the chef. There's limitations to how far he can go in a restaurant. Um, similarly, in the second quote, Siobhan is talking about the sorts of work he can get. He's noting that he can work within the Turkish community, but he can't find a job in what he describes as a foreign workplace. So there's an issue about the sorts of employers that you would go to for work. And the third one, I think, is interesting because he's talking about his, his human capital. He, hasn't, he has no English. But he's further um, dividing that and talking about dialect. So he couldn't go and seek work in a, in a place which was Cantonese-speaking. So he had to go to a Mandarin-speaking environment. So that was further kind of intersected with, with other aspects of his human capital. Um, so these are some of the things that people talked about. So they were limited in terms of sectors, the sorts of employers you could go to, the type of jobs that you might get. Now moving on to precarious work and its dimensions, these are all part of the constraints. The sorts of things people focused on was the sick pay, lack of job security, but also this relational idea about how, as undocumented migrants, they're treated differently from other workers in the workplace, expected to work longer hours, for less pay, to do the most menial tasks within the workplace. Um, and that was without feeling um, like they could contest that kind of treatment because of their lack of status made them feel powerless in that context. And people talked about um, working in jobs for a month, standing in just to fill in until somebody came in who they could employ who had papers. They, they saw themselves as providing flexible labour, short-term labour, um, filling in gaps. So not being able to make plans was part of everyday life. This idea of precariousness linked to insecurity, lack of job stability, was um, part of everyday life. Um, this was particularly seen to be the case amongst some of the kitchen porters. And Afsal was from Bangladesh, he was 45, and he said to us, um, kitchen porters, they're illegal, they offer us to leave the next day. Others talked about um, doing work trials, not being able to speak out, not having papers. Um, and one of the things that comes through in the transcripts and the narratives of the undocumented migrants that we talked to was this idea of being weak, but the employers knowing that they were weak as well. So one of our interviewees, um, who was Fadi from Bangladesh, he was 26 years old at the time of the interview, said... Um, how, he talked about how his status made him weak, and I'm just going to briefly quote him. Um, what he says is, they know we are weak, we're treated different in all ways, even with regard to hours worked. We do 14 to 15 hours every day with less pay. My position is weak, and you can't really ask the owner. The legal ones work less hours. The illegal people, we do all the work. Sometimes we have to work, do work which isn't our work. It's exploitation. We are weak, the boss is getting cheap labour, saves him taking another person, saves him money. So there's a lot of things here. He's talking about his weakness, he's talking relationally with other workers, but he's also taking, talking about his lack of ability because of his status or feeling unable to contest his position within that framework. Others talked about feeling repressed. Um, so a number of people talked about how their lives as precarious workers and what that meant in relation to other workers as well. Now, the third thing I talked about on that, that slide was, was the idea of workplace relations. And people talked about how they felt in relation to discrimination. And what I find interesting about the, quote, the first quote there from Zeeland 
is she's talking not just about her immigration status as well. She's also identifying um, the conflict between groups within the Turkish community. So she's highlighting the complexity of her situation. So discrimination is more complex. And actually, in our narratives, people did talk about these things within their workplaces. Um, although the lens was mainly status, there were other things that also intersected with that. And I think that these come through. In terms of bullying, Chung from China talks about um, how the people who've been here longer bully the newcomers. So that was also a factor. How long you've been here, how, how much you, you know, confident you were to, to assert yourself within certain workplace situations. The third area is this idea of threats, and this came through in a number of the narratives, feeling vulnerable because you are vulnerable to deportation. And deportation, of course, is, is the key thing. Deportability and avoiding deportation is, is one of the key things that frames people's decision-making in terms of their everyday lives and their workplace experiences. So what um, Zana is saying is that um, his employer said to him that he couldn't contest not getting paid because... You don't have a work permit, so he could report you to the police. So using that as a weapon in terms of um, not meeting your right, your obligations as an employer was something that came through in some of the narratives. I'm not saying that all employers necessarily mistreated their workers. Workplace experiences are variable and they're diverse. Um, some people had good experiences at work, and we'll come on to that being some of the reasons why people stayed in jobs because they felt safe and the, and the bosses treated them well. Okay, so what I'm going to move on to now is workplace choices. I said that people also have choices in the workplace. So it's not necessarily that all workers are vulnerable. They do make decisions about their working lives. And people carefully weigh up um, the jobs they work in, their pay, their safety, their security, where they live, where they work, the value of social networks. There's a number of aspects in working lives, in people's working lives, that they carefully evaluate in order to make decisions about, about jobs. Now, people move jobs for, for three main reasons, really. One was personal reasons. So if you're unhappy with treatment at work, if you felt unsafe, if your employer requested papers and you couldn't produce papers, um, if you didn't like the job environment, these were all reasons for moving work. As with acquiring new skills and training, people move between jobs as they acquired skills, and part of that skills acquisition was to put yourself in a position to get better work more pay and people actively did that um, so there were people did move jobs and they did improve their situations incrementally not always careful weighing up sometimes people took less work and less money to move to a job where they felt more safe so these things were always being evaluated nevertheless that was individual agency making that decision about um, where to work also electing to stay in jobs as I said but geographical mobility and sometimes other choices as well um, so people left work when um, they weren't happy at work, as I said, and, and there were a number of reasons, but one of the key things was to um, progress in the labour market. Now, on the right-hand side there, I've just put a little um, diagram, I suppose, of, of the kind of routes in the restaurant or takeaway shop um, that people might um, use. Many, many of these are restaurants. But if you're preparing Chinese food, you might start as a, a dazzle worker, which is a kitchen labourer, and work yourself up to controlling the wok so, and doing frying work as well. And then the final job is the chef, and the head chef is the person that mainly does the recruitment in the restaurants and controls the kitchen. 
one of the things in the first quote that Chiang is saying is that after a month he learnt the skill for taking care of the oil walk. So he went to find another job so he could use that skill. He didn't want to stay as a dazzle worker. He wanted to use the skill. He wanted to get more money. So he was proactive in moving his job. Similarly, Jian talks about starting off as a kitchen labourer. In the, the more extensive part of his quote, which I've cut down for, for the slide, he talks about most people working for about a year as a kitchen labourer. You're bringing the bread and the food to the chef, and eventually you get to do some mezze preparation. And that's the next step in the restaurant kitchen. Similarly, um, in the restaurants that were preparing Indian food, um, the quote from Suman is talking about how he got a better job, and his strategy was increasing his demand, going to different restaurants, moving around. He also talks about going to busier restaurants. If you go to busier restaurants and you show you can cope in a busy working environment, you, you show that you're good and you can get promotions across restaurant sectors. So people were proactive in trying to improve their situations um, in terms of moving around and getting new skills. But people also decided to stay in jobs too and not move for jobs. And some of the reasons for staying in that was, were having friendships within the workplace. And in the quote here from Chow, he, stopped, he talks about staying in a job because his close friends were working there. He felt happy. Working in the same place with your friends was important to him. Made him feel good. Um, and as he says in the quote, we used to say that we'd put up with the low wages, even though we knew full well that the wages were low. And Rehan simply says, I feel safe at work. She'd been working in the same job for a long time. And she knew that her pay was low as well, but she didn't want to rock the boat. She felt safe. She had a sense of autonomy in what she did. And that outweighed the kind of dropping the boat, moving, trying to get more money. She was staying put where she was. Other people moved um, geographical locations. Um, and part of this was to get more money. Part of it was moving to, to feel... Um, in touch with friends and to explore social, expand your social networks. Um, it was interesting, actually, because some people talked about getting more money outside of London and some people talked about getting less money outside London. So I think that varied. It was difficult to know. But in these quotes, in the first one, Gian's talking about the importance of networks. Um, he'd been working in Scotland, and although the pay was good, you can see it was £130 more a week for him, he felt really isolated. But people also moved, and one of his reasons for moving, actually, was because his solicitor was in London. So he wanted, initially he moved to London so he could get legal advice. So that was part of it as well. Um, in the second quote, Hassan's talking about money, um, and he's basically talking about how accommodation comes with the job. And this is an important way of saving money. Living above the shop literally saves you money and accommodation. Um, sometimes, obviously, that's taken out of the money that you earn, but nevertheless, it saves you rents and often food too. So he's talking about how outside London you always get your accommodation um, and you can also get your food as well. So you save an amount of money by doing that. Um, and in the final quote, Fung's talking about working... The countryside is anything outside of London, basically. It's kind of the term that's used to describe outside of London. But he's saying, she's saying about never working in, in Chinatown. Chinatown's too dangerous. Um, but she'd worked in different places. But the key thing for her was working in places that were safe, okay, or, or seemed to be safe. Um, now, other tactics were, that people um, engaged in were, were either using or not using documents. And again, some people um, never used constructed documents, fictive documents, or borrowed them, or bought them. And other people did. 
Um, so this again varied. This was a strategy, and people decided about that strategy. In the first quote, um, I like this because Locke says, I won't do this. is somebody who's living as an undocumented migrant and working when they haven't got the right to work in the UK, and he says, that would be breaking the law. Okay? So this is the idea of criminality and what constitutes criminality, and um, he's conscious of that, but it's not just about breaking the law. It's also an additional risk. So um, people are aware of the additional risk of that too. But in the second quote, NASA is basically saying, well, if you get really stuck, there are agencies that can make documents. The agencies negotiate with the employers. Of course they charge you a fee, so it's not the desired route because you have to pay for that. But if you're really desperate, that's something that you can do if you are desperate. And then the final thing in terms of other tactics is whether to disclose your status or not. Some people had disclosed their status in the workplace and some people had decided not to, worrying that if they disclosed their workplace, their, their status, they would instantly be more exploitable at work um, or they would lose their job. So there were different things that could happen. So that was, a, again, a choice or a tactic that people made. That was their individual agency in terms of whether to do that or not. Now, the final thing um, is the more hazy and contested areas of choices and constraints. And people make compromises in relation to work. Um, And you could argue that some of these are choices and some of these are constraints. Um, And as I said, you know, accepting low pay, accepting your poor terms and conditions, deciding not to contest it or not complaining is as much a choice as it is a constraint. And I want to read you a short quote by Dennis, um, who is um, a Kurd from Turkey, 31-year-old man. And what he says was that his employer knew that he was illegal and didn't care, because the employer knew that he would work longer hours when he was asked to work them, and he would have to say yes. And the interviewer said to him, why are you just accepting this? And he says, you have to. Just imagine you're in a country for a few months and you can't speak English, Um, you are illegal, what will you say? If you do not work well or accept what my employer says to me, do you think I will be known that much? I do not think so, because now they say Dennis is hard working. Dennis gets along with other people. You have to be like that, otherwise you'll be jobless. What he's doing is he's constructing an image of himself as a hard working person who an employer would want to have. Um, and we've seen this in other of the academic literature where there's this idea, racialised idea of constructing yourself or certain groups being hardworking or being seen as hardworking and therefore desirable to employ because they will work hard. It's this kind of stereotyping. But he's playing into this by constructing himself in that way as well. So he's not contesting, he's going along with it, he's working hard, he wants to be seen that way. The other thing that people do in the workplace is they try to be liked. And trying to be liked is a way of trying to keep safe, um, accepting and putting up with things. And one of our interviewees interviewees talks about trying to look nice and trying to be polite. And she says the reason she does this is after a small argument, they might call the home office. It happened to a person I know. So just being very complicit and compliant is part of a way of um, keeping yourself a bit safer. So I think the key points, um, just to reflect on, is that people saw themselves relationally in the workplace, that is, in relationship to people with documents. Um, They were well aware of their vulnerabilities, but were also very aware of some of the choices they could have, and some people were able to take choices and did when they could. That varied, and I think that's the key thing. There's no one experience, it's variable, it's complex, and there are a number of things that come into play. 
And the final point is the intersections with policy. Policy isn't stopping migration and it's not stopping the employment of workers without correct documents. Um, what we are seeing is that workers are further entrenched in the most marginalised, precarious positions within the workplace and the unregulated parts of the economy and unable to access workers' rights or the human rights associated with personhood rather than citizenship. And I think that is something that is really crucial in the experiences that we uncovered. Whatever individual agency and choices people made, I think the facts remain clear that there are constraints and issues that reflect back on the, the way in which we structure our policy environment.